Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. And welcome to our sixth session of Islamic Book Reviews. Um, my name is Osama Al Azami, and please uh, sort of like uh, join myself and Omar and Shalsi for uh, a discussion of the book Muhammad's Body, Baraka Networks, and Prophetic Assemblages by Michael Muhammad. Oh. Um, Hold it up. Omar will be Sorry, Omar will be introducing <laughs> the book in just a moment. Um, and uh, the typical format that we have is we have a discussion of the book on the part of Omar uh, for about 10 to 15 minutes. Then I'll take a just by way of summary and introduction. And and then uh, you know I'll be engaged in a conversation with Omar for probably around half an hour after his presentation. And then we're more than happy to take questions uh, and comments, inshallah. So without further ado, I want to actually launch in uh, to the conversation. So please, uh, Omar, introduce the book to us, inshallah. So, so this is, uh, well, Michael Mohammed Knight, I should say something about him, is a, known, is a very prolific author. Uh, and I think this is his, gosh, 13th or 14th book. Uh, this one in particular is very original and interesting. It is theoretically sophisticated. He uses the, the framework of Deleuze and Guattari to dis discuss uh, the prophet's body and what the prophet's body can do as depicted in the Sira Maghazi literature which we discussed uh, in last week's episode and also uh, focusing on, on the hadith corpus. Uh, no pun intended, the book is organized into five body chapters uh, that explore a range of themes focusing on particular you know, aspects of the Prophet's body and its, its interaction uh, with the wider world, or how, how the outside world impinges on his body, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And uh, he explores a couple of themes, you know, there are motifs that recur throughout the book. Uh, Knight is not really focused on the question of historicity at all, though he does stop to pass Isnads and comment that such and such is a Kufan or Basran or Zubayrid Isnad. Uh, but he is interested in uh, the transformation and continuities as well in, uh, in the depiction of the Prophet's body and its attributes and traits and powers, you could say, uh, over time. So he does pick up on uh, how the depiction of this body and what it can do shifts, but there are also substantial uh, continuities as well. So to give one uh, example, uh, already in the earliest texts, uh, such as uh, Ma'amar bin Rashid's Maghazi uh, uh, work that we discussed last week, uh, one finds that the Prophet's saliva has, you could say, magical properties. You know, he uses it to heal his companions, he spits into a well and the water uh, immediately becomes abundant. Uh, he, he rubs some of his saliva into the eye of Ali in one uh, later report and it is immediately kind of healed of all defects. Uh, that is one example. And uh, this is the, specifically with saliva, this is something you, you find in early texts and in later texts. But the characterization of the Prophet's body does change over time. Just to give you a sense of the uh, reigns, temporal reigns of the sources consulted in this work. Uh, we begin with Sira Maghazi texts like Ma'amar, uh, his Maghazi, like Ibn Ishaq in its various recensions, Ibn Sa'd and so on. And uh, the Hadith corpuses including the well-known well works, but going as late as uh, 
kind of historical or quasi-hadith uh, texts such as Al-Khatib al-Baghdadi's Tariq Baghdad, Abu Nu'im's Hilyat al-Awliya, and so on. And really, I think one of the underlying points Knight is trying to make, because he's, he's, he's very interested in this question of the construction of Sunnism and how Sunnism emerges over time. And he really stresses the point that Sunnism is not one thing and does not have one particular view on any of the, the questions he explores in this book. Uh, you could say that over time, there is an increasing investment in the ability of the Prophet's body, وسلم, to, to, to transcend itself and to reach beyond itself. And I know in various episodes uh, in previous weeks, we, we've explored the cult of saints, for instance. Uh, what does it mean that the Prophet uh, has passed away? Uh, how can believers still sort of commune with him? A prophet's alive in their graves, according to one report, praying, and, and, and in what sense do they enjoy this life? How, how is the prophetic body distinct from other human bodies? What marks it out as significant uh, or unusual? And even within, so he explores these different strands, layers of the Hadith corpus, and the impression one really gets when reading this book is, uh, first of all, the, the common sense insight that it's, it's not a single thing, uh, but that Sunnism and uh, this kind of hadith corpus outside the canonical sources and even within them is, is really a cacophony of voices, uh, you know, whether on the Prophet's body or, or other subjects. And you find some reports, and he gives a number of examples of this, some reports uh, that appear in early sources that are then omitted by the six uh, so-called canonical Sunni works uh, of Hadith. And he discusses the idea of canonicity somewhat and uh, in the course of Sunni identity and its formation. Uh, and so they, they're omitted from this exposure and then they reappear with a vengeance, as it were, in, in later sources like Marjam al-Tabarani. So he's not... Um, he doesn't focus, at least, on the question of historicity, but one does get a very clear sense of historical development. Uh, some uh, discussions kind of reoccur throughout, throughout the entirety of the period. Others are uh, novel, you could say, to later periods. Um, and th these are some of, of the author's interesting findings. Uh, so you have a range of chapters, as I said. One especially interesting one, given the author's uh, he's very upfront about his sort of feminist scholarly genealogy and commitments. There is an excellent uh, chapter on uh, the sex of revelation, prophethood and gendered bodies, uh, where he looks not just at the gendering of the prophet himself, وسلم, but uh, of the angels, and even indeed uh, in this theological controversy about the prophet's vision of God. Did the prophet see God? If so, how? Uh, and so on. Um, and uh, also he... Uh, tries to ground, especially in the early part of the book, these discussions in their late antique Mediterranean context. So all of the descriptions we read in works of Shema'il, uh, for instance, about the Prophet's appearance, uh, how do these square with like ancient norms of, of physiognomy, this discipline of Firasa? Uh, you know, we find the Prophet always imagined by his companions, وسلم, as a kind of, of middling stature, uh, you know, neither too tall nor too short, neither too dark nor too light. And some interesting discussion of the Prophet's color, very interesting subject. Um, and uh, this does reflect the, the kind of ideals of 
of the discourse of physiognomy. You know, excess is bad, and the body and its external appearance mirror one's internal disposition. So this kind of middling quality, is, is, as we'd expect, is a, is, is a good one. Uh, and also an interesting chapter on interventions on the prophet's body, uh, whether through what he humorously terms angelic heart surgery, the, the opening of the prophet's uh, you know, chest, uh, and uh, as well as this kind of cacophony of voices, Knight does always present multiple versions, multiple variants of the same report. Uh, to mention one example, on this, this episode of, of the opening of the Prophet's breast, uh, we have multiple variants, and scholars disagree in, in, in various hadith uh, texts uh, and sirah texts when exactly this took place. Some date it to the Prophet's childhood, others say it took place, uh, the two kind of major accounts in childhood and uh, shortly before the Isra. Others would say it happens immediately before the first revelation the Prophet receives. So multiple accounts, and again, different different versions of what happened, varying in, in various details. So, in one marginal version, it is not two angels that come to the prophet and remove something from his heart, uh, but it is in fact uh, two large white birds who are kind of uh, angels in, in bird form. You, you could perhaps right. say, and with Sunnism's increasing investment in things like prophetic. Uh, protection from error or asma, sometimes translated as infallibility. These texts also undergo a certain amount of change and, and the way they're interpreted and understood uh, by authors shifts over time. So as well as emphasizing, emphasizing how uh, this is really a cacophony of voices and not just one thing, um, this archive of uh, impressions of the prophet and his body uh, is uh, you can think of it as a kind of epigraphy. You know, the, this this uh, image or metaphor Karen Bauer uses when discussing Quran commentary. Think of layers of rock, sort of one on top of another. Uh, it's not that the, the Sunni Hadith corpus comes along or the Sahaba Siddha come along and manage to suppress all the alternate versions. Right. But right. all of these are always already available insofar as the texts are available to us. Right. Right. Uh, and these, these kind of competing strands and layers and perspectives on the prophet body, they're available for people to kind of uh, appeal to in their argument. So I, I think these are some of the key themes and key contributions uh, of the text. So hopefully you've, you've got a sense of it, or the audience has, has a good sense of what it's doing. There's a lot going on in the text, I should stress, so I'm, uh, yes, but hopefully some of this will come out in our conversation. I have a bit, have of, an a bit of an echo. So just give me one minute. Give me one minute. I don't know if that's gone now. Okay. Yes. So the um, uh, I mean, that's a very useful overview, and I think you've touched on a whole host of themes that could take this conversation on for, for a good period of time, much beyond the uh, sort of hour that we have allocated for it. Um, and of course, people are more than welcome to ask questions. Um, they will come up in the chat, and we can share them, uh, hopefully address them in the last uh, 15 or 20 minutes of the conversation as well. Um, but uh, I wanted to sort of home in on a, on a few um, themes that you've um, sort of highlighted, and perhaps I can uh, address them in turn, and, and we can engage in this uh, hopefully um, uh, fascinating conversation, in a sense, on a, on a fascinating book. Um, one is the way in which you're 
uh, sort of you just described Sunnism uh, and the construction of Sunnism uh, within sort of the narrative that uh, Michael Knight has put forward, um, and you've uh, referenced Karen Bauer's work. I'm not entirely sure which work of hers you're referencing in that. Well, this is, this is her book, but I'm, that that particular discussion doesn't occur in the book. Right. I'm just uh, using Karen to, sure, make, sure. Uh, to elaborate on a point that emerges very very clearly in the book. One of the things about the the Sunni tradition is. Uh, almost sort of self-consciously perhaps, it doesn't, um, as you've mentioned, it's not really about suppressing other voices, but in a sense, accentuating <laughs> sort of- Some of those other voices would disagree with you, Summer. <laughs> but um, yes. No, I mean- Sorry, continue, please continue, Summer. There's, there's a range of what constitutes oppression and what would be, I mean, the, the notion, for example, that, uh, uh, you know, the, the um, within certain um, sort of uh, Shia formations, for example, the notion that there might be certain types of divinization in certain individuals, etc. This is going beyond the question of 12 imams, for example. Um, yes, that would in a sense be rejected outright. But what I'm trying well, to what say, I is say, by the way, uh, certain ideas that we might assume are distinctively Shia, yes. uh, for instance, uh, the notion that the Prophet's daughter, Sallallahu Fatima, never menstruated. You do find those in the latest Sunni Hadith corpus like Tabarani. Right. I should stress you, uh, and uh, sorry for interrupting, but it's, it's an important no, no. point. Sunnism is, is kind of in the process of formation and crystallization. And he, he appeals to the work of Scott Lucas to say there are really kind of three key features of early Sunnism or proto-Sunnism, this term we've encountered in previous weeks. Right, right. Lucas says it's, it's really three key elements. The collective valorization of the Sahaba, Tadim yeah. al-Sahaba, right, right. uh, also a, a particular vision of history. So you could say the, the good guys won and the caliphs, uh, the Khulafa al-Rashidin won all, all evil and, and so on. Right. Uh, and you know the all of all of the companions, notwithstanding their differences, are ultimately good guys. You could say. Right, right, right. Uh, and thirdly, uh, although he doesn't use this term, jo Jonathan Brown has talking about uh, spoken about the cult of the Isnad. Right. So how do we validate or derive particular norms? It's it's really through this particular form of, of hadith analysis. This this is what makes the, the earlier proto Sunnis distinctive. Now. Yeah. While they are becoming distinctive, and, and while Sunni identity and the sectarian boundaries are crystallizing, yeah. uh, you know there is a certain amount of sharing, that, and many people have done work on the uh, Shia or proto-Shia hadith corpus. There is a huge amount of overlap, right. and many shared narrators. And I know Michael Michael Dan has looked at the sharing of narrators. Right. Of Mike, yeah. uh, Michael Knight himself in the book talks about using the work of Melchert and others, the exclusion of sectarian narrators that really hardens by the end of the third century. Right, right. And, and other such processes. The, the point I'm making though, I think is a slightly different one. You know, obviously there are certain uh, points on which, um, you know, particularly where there's kind of a political sensitivity to a question that suppression is kind of the default in the way in which any um, sort of entity will assert themselves uh, in the public sphere. But I think, what I'm talking about is the notion that I'm, and I'm in a sense drawing on my own sort of uh, research areas, questions of, question of rebellion, for example, within the Sunni tradition. And, you know, Khalid um, Abul Fadl has obviously a very important book in that regard. Um, you know, one of the things that he, I think, illustrates very well is that, as you say, it's a very cacophonous um, sort of uh, uh, 
it's a series of discordant voices in many respects. But instead of suggesting, uh, as I think in uh, some of the post-classical tradition and much of perhaps even the classical tradition would say that, well, Sunnism is a particular perspective. It's actually, in my estimation, Sunnism is the cacophony, right? Um, or the broad tent, if you like. Or the broad tent. I mean, in a sense, I'm, I'm kind of drawing on people like Krona here, but the notion that, you know, we're trying to be as inclusive as possible. And, uh, you know, this is kind of the... Within certain constraints. Within certain constraints. Obviously, you have people like, um, you know, even Ghazali in his Faisal al-Tafriqa, which is really trying to expand it, you know, really quite broadly. Yes. It has a limit. Otherwise, it doesn't have coherence, you know, if you don't... Yes. And uh, you, you do find... So not just in this book, but elsewhere, and, and you can speak of Knight's Corpus because there are a number of books. He's very kind of interested in this question of Sunni identity and, and what gets marginalized, what gets left out in the story. Right. Uh, specifically in this book, he explores using Ash'ari's maqalat, uh, views of those who talk, who talk explicitly about the gendering of, of God's body or God having a particular corporeal form or you know, things that would be problematic from a, a kind of certainly classical Sunni uh, perspective. Yeah, it's not necessarily from the Al Hadith, <laughs> but yes, yeah, it's complicated, isn't it? I mean, in the earliest yeah, period, it's complicated. <laughs> that, 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 a nice, a nice summary of uh, one of the things the book is is trying to do. Uh, yes, yeah. So yeah, I mean, I, I just wanted to highlight that point that, in a sense, um, it's useful if this book is presenting, um, you know, Sunnism as cacophonous. In as much as um, you know, there is a resistance to thinking, uh, or, uh, or there's a sort of tendency to think of Sunnism as uniform, um, and I think uh, you know, Sunnism, in a sense, doesn't have uniformity on most things, and that's why it, you know, that's in a sense, it's raison d'être. It's about trying to bring people together as much as possible. And again, yes, I, I suppose signal. you could say that. I'm also speaking as an insider within this new tradition, but yeah. Shem Jackson, to a certain extent, signals this in his introduction to the Faisal Tafrika, which I, I recently reread, so it's fresh in my mind, uh -huh. um, where he basically says that, well, you know, the Sunnis made a choice of whether they should develop an ecclesiastical hierarchy that imposes a single vision or try mm -hmm. and accept as many different voices as possible. And by, do, by choosing the latter, they, you know, they might not be able to have as much unity as, uh, you know, as other types of um, systems, but they, you know, manage, they, they try and keep a broad church as well. <laughs> I use the term. You know. Yes. <laughs> if, if it's not, uh, if it's up. So, yeah, I mean, one of the things he says is, for instance, we might expect, based on the actions of certain Muslims and Muslim groups, that, you know, the the reverence for, um, well, elements to do with the cult of saints. So there, there's a big discussion towards the end of the book about uh, the prophet's body after the prophet. Uh, but again, when we look into this, we do find the Hadith corpus embodies competing perspectives. Right, right. Um, and in terms of the development in a particular direction, one of the things that stands out, in a number of places he comments on Ma'amar bin Rasid's Maghazi, he makes it very clear that Ma'amar's uh, text uh, in some sense makes the Prophet's body a profane one in the sense that it, it being, being, I think, the earliest text he looks at here, uh, it, 
it does not seem to have some of the extravagant powers or traits associated with it, the later text too. Right. But already, I mean, well, well, Ma'amar dies 153 right. of the Hijra, right. but already in Ibn Ishaq and Ibn Sa'd, also very early sources, hmm. you do have uh, other impulses. You know, he talks about Barakah water, the, the fact that in, in some reports the Prophet generates water, usually drinking water from between his fingers and, and various things like this. Right. Uh, so yes, it's Which kind of like, like in the major collections of hadith. You know, there's a there's a very yes, yes, indeed, indeed. Hmm. So um, I see a question here that relates to something we were just discussing. So I, I should uh, take it now. I think so. This is from John Islam. If you, I don't know if you want to put it up on the screen. Yeah, that's fine. I'm I'm happy to. Sorry, I wasn't yes. paying attention. Yeah. Not at all. So uh, that's a great question, Dan, and I do want to stay focused on the book as much as possible, but it, it is interested in that theme. So just in the interest of people who are, you know, re-listening on the podcast, I'll read it out. <laughs> okay, so um, you talk about, so Jan Islam is asking, you talk about the definition of Sunnism as opposed to other denominations. How do Sunnis define it? Um, yeah. yeah, so I'm not trying to use the term denominations, it has a very Christian sort of resonance, but how do Sunnis divide? Well, which Sunni are you asking? <laughs> Many Sunnis would not recognize each other even legitimately as, as fellow Muslims. Uh, and this is something that the Knight is very aware of. I mean, there are elements of this corpus he discusses, uh, as I said, that were perceived as theologically problematic by Sunnis. So all of the uh, reports you find in this ihah like uh, God creating Adam fi surati. Well, how do you interpret this? In whose image? Hmm. Uh, yes, and uh, another example, the Prophet's vision of God. So uh, I remember reading, not not in this book, but one of, one of the narrations that comes up a long time uh, discussed by Vanus, uh, as mentioned in this book, is the vision of a youthful God. So in some reports, the Prophet is reported to have seen a God uh, and some reports make it explicit that this is a kind of dream vision. Others reports do not mention this. Right. Uh, but, you know, in the form of a boy or in the form of uh, a youth a with man, golden yeah. hair and all of this, uh, a scholar like a Dhahabi says, in, I remember coming across it in Sierra Alam and Nobel, he says something like, this report is fabricated regardless of it. It's a snare. He uses this, this description, which is quite unusual for Dhahabi. Uh, but uh, there were indeed Muslims, uh, some who would, uh, even though their you know, the interpretation of the report uh, might be unclear, there, there were Muslims who uh, defended the authenticity, at least, of this report, even if they interpreted it in various ways. Another example, the controversial interpretation, something that you could say Orientalists with a capital O have discussed, and many, many Western uh, academicians without an extra crime, um, if indeed that, that's a plausible, uh, if that's a possibility, uh, the interpretation of the verse in Surah Al-Najm, he was two bow lengths or nearer. Now, who is this a reference to? Who does the, the pronoun refer to here? Most Sunni theologians and interpreters would say it's Gabriel. Yeah. But already in, in the earliest strand of text, you see it as a reference to God. And in fact, uh, Ibn al-Jawzi, when he's critiquing Abu Ya'la and the other Hanbalites for what he views as the anthropomorphism, he says they interpret this as a reference to God and this is right. problematic. And right. so quite a lot of discussion of anthropomorphism in this uh, in this book. Interesting. I mean, so let me just um, 
add to what you said in terms of, um, I mean, you earlier mentioned that, yes, some Sunnis would not consider other Sunnis to be sort of um, even, even Muslims. And I think, you know, in a sense, uh, I think that happens most strikingly before this kind of, the, I think that's a proto-Sunni phenomenon. Perhaps my, I'm getting, I'm going to have to sort of correct my chronology a little on this, but in a sense, you know, you have narrations from someone like Ahmed saying, or something, you know, that I saw my Lord in a dream in the image of a young young man or a young boy. Dreams are not so problematic. Right, right. The problem is that in some versions of the report, it is not explicitly indicated that this, right. this occurred in a dream. Right, right, right. So, you know, what you want to do with this, you know, there are many directions you could take this and you right. could try to reconcile the reports. Right. Uh, or you could do totally kind of preponderate or prefer one over the other, one of those and over the other. But, but in the turn of the Zahabi, I suspect that basically what you have is the... I mean, for want of a, a, a better term, the sort of the more anthropomorphizing <laughs> tendencies within Ahlul Hadith and, and the Hanabula have been, in a sense, brought into a reconciliation with the speculative theologians who are kind of somewhere between them and the Mu'tazila, right? Um, and, and that's kind of Sunnism. And those are very opposing tendencies that will look to each other as Ahlul Bid'ah very often, but still you know, within the broad Sunni umbrella. So that's, I mean... Yeah, I, even within Hanbalism itself... I, I wonder to what extent it's true that they would actually look to each other and say, you're not Muslim. Um, I know that that takes place, even to this day, I mean, you have the, in, oh. in a place like the Indian subcontinent, um, you have different groups of Muslims <laughs> um, who will call other, you know, people who... Are themselves Hanafi and Maturidi and uh, yes, I mean uh, the the Brandis regarding the Theobandis and the Brandi debates. They'll call them non-Muslim, and so you know it's it's very perhaps um, the way I should frame this is Sunnism is in constant formation. Right? Yeah, I, I suppose you could say that. <laughs> but they, they, there are some things they share. You know, you you cannot be a Sunni and denounce Omar. You know, as discussed in right. the book right. and as. And, and denounce Amr as a, a kind of false caliph or something right. like this. Right, right, right. So there are some constitutive features, but within that, there's a huge amount of of diversity. Interesting. Um, Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So it's it's fascinating. I and in some ways, because he's, he's interested again in the in this question of sectarian identity and boundary formation and. Right. Uh, and, and, and you could even say canonization in terms of the, especially the six books of Sunni Hadith, and he does discuss, referring to the work of, of Jonathan Brown in particular, you know, when when they become canonical and so on. And some viewed it as five, five books, and Ibn Majah had a slightly dubious status among the, the so-called canon, right. uh, and so on. But there are some things about the Prophet's body, we, we almost take for granted uh, by virtue of this canon. So certain, you know, although we, the, it's not as though even the, the six books themselves necessarily always privilege one perspective on things, by virtue of omission and selection, uh, they do clearly privilege a particular view often. So, for instance, we know uh, in the six books that the, 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 the earth does not consume the bodies of prophets. Right. 
right? So the, the suggestion is that the bodies of prophets do not decay. They're not subject to the regular processes of uh, of decay and decomposition of other bodies. Right. But again, if you if you if you look beyond the canon, as it were, uh, two texts like Ibn Sa'd, yeah. uh, he he mentions again even in Ibn Sa'd, Stabakat himself competing views. So right. again, a suggestion that uh, prophetic bodies uh, are not subject to these rules. Mm-hmm. But Al Abbas says, you know, that the prophet's body will decompose like like any other. Right. And uh, you it's so inside. interesting. And yes. Yeah. So. Even, you know, it's not that we're able to easily reconstruct an original view uh, because already when you go to early sources, you do often have these competing and even contradictory voices. These kind of competing voices, yes. Yeah. No, sorry, I was just saying, and, you know, further challenging is sometimes you have the same person having, uh, you know, contradictory views attributed to them as well. Yes. In this book, one of the interesting things in is, uh, things is, on more than one issue, he explores the perspective of a particular Sahabi. So a uh, great example is Aisha. And uh, he doesn't claim any historicity to this, but Aisha's perspective or the, the views attributed to her seem to emerge with a certain amount of consistency. So, for instance, uh, she is, uh, and, and, and also her voice is quite distinctive on a range of issues relating to bodies and the Prophet's body, in particular. So, for example, uh, she consistently denies that the Prophet saw God in his lifetime against uh, other views attributed to other companions. And curiously, in some sources, she's even reported to have seen Gabriel herself. And in some reports, she says, uh, these are quite later ones, uh, that she was the only woman to have seen the angel Gabriel. Uh, in some reports, you find Ibn Abbas uh, having been said to to have seen seen Zibril salam. So, right. yes, to some extent, these voices do emerge as distinctive. But you, you're right; you have competing and contrasting views as well uh, attributed to the same person. And what's interesting about uh, later Sunnism, in my estimation, is when you get to the sort of more encyclopedic scholars like, you know, like al-Dhahabi or um, Ibn Hajar comes to mind, um, you know, Ibn Taymiyyah, that uh, these people, in a sense, will reference all of these and kind of not say, not always insist that there's one correct opinion on this. They'll just say, look, there's, you know, you know, did, um, you know, the Prophet see God? Well, this is the view of Aisha, and this is the view of such and such a person. And we have two riwayas from Ibn Abbas, and we don't have a chronology there. And therefore, yes. we don't really I, have... the, I should say that particular issue is doctrinally safe and, and yeah. uncontroversial. You know, right, right, right. These will recognize that the Prophet may or may not have seen God, and the companions disagreed about it. But, you know, what about other other areas... Uh, so he does yeah. touch on some very... Could you um, maybe give some good examples, if that's right, of, of con- doctrinally unsafe, so to speak. Well, uh, you know, I, 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 all, I should stress all of these things are found in the Sunni Hadith corpus. It's not, right. not like light has brought them from nowhere. Right, right, right. So in some, in some respects, you could say they, they are part of the, of the broad yeah. Islamic heritage. Yeah. Um, so, for instance, I mean, some people would find problematic the idea that in some reports, uh, you know, the, the Prophet's body, I saw some, they, they, the Sahaba did not begin to bury it or did not decide to bury it until it showed signs of 
beginning to undergo the normal processes one associates with death. So, for instance, right. he talks about the, the bloating of the stomach, so I said, um, so, you know, many so, people would be uncomfortable right. discussing course, this. Yes, yes, and, and that uh, would for be... For understandable reasons. Where is that I'm, reported? I'm just wondering. Uh, gosh, off the top of my head, I, I do not remember, but right. specifically the, the decay issue one, one does find. Now, another, uh, particularly in the modern context, because something Omid Safi has talked about, uh, both in his kind of envisioning of the Sira and elsewhere, right. is, you know, most Muslims historically have not, <laughs> you know, have not approached the, the life of the Prophet Sallallahu as, you know, a, a, a work of uh, Rankian history, you know, this, this kind of exercise in an archive and, and what have you. Right. But they've approached the Prophet as an, not just an exemplary man, which is right. all of our view, uh, as Muslims in various ways, yeah. but as a kind of cosmic figure, think especially in the post-classical right. period, um, as a man of light. I mean, I remember this this Brelwi Sira work that I, I've seen in mosques several times <laughs> called the Shadowless Prophet hmm. uh, that underplay, you know, the human elements you could say of the Prophet's life. Now, yeah. to some extent, all all people recognize at least an element of the Prophet's humanity. But how how far does this does yeah. this go? Right, right. Uh, uh, and one, one, one example, I, one, one thing, if I could make one point uh, about the book where, you know, maybe, maybe it's just a suggestion for further research rather than, than a, a criticism or disagreement with the book. I, there, there are important early sources such as, to mention it, to, to flog it at horse, the Kitab al-Tahrish of Dirar bin Amr, because it is so early, right. because of the second century. Uh, which was published, I think, after the dissertation was submitted, but uh, perhaps bef before the manuscript for this book was submitted. So I, I don't know about the, the timing of all of this. The author may not have had access to it for various reasons, but right. you know, some of our earliest records of debates, for example, about uh, Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi and Yuha Ilay, as the editor titles the chapter uh, of the book. What, what status did the Prophet have before his prophethood, right. he refers to the the really interesting paper of Maya J. Kista, mm -hmm. suggesting, for instance, that the prophet, when he was a youth, you know, many years before his commission as a prophet, uh, ate once ate uh, or this report discussing his his eating meat that had been sacrificed to an idol. Mm -hmm. Now, already in the Sunni Hadith corpus, there are clear attempts to counter this. If you look at Dirar bin Amr, whose text uh, is, is Tahrish, predates nearly all of the sources uh, night addresses, you already see this cacophony. Why? You already see Sunnis, uh, or not even Sunnis, you already see Muslims who are claiming that no, you know, uh, the Prophet was protected even before his commissioning as a Prophet around the age of 40 from not only participating in idolatrous worship, but any kind of problematic behavior. Right. And you see. Uh, other other voices saying other things. I mean, to some extent, you, I suppose, you could even do this with the Quran. Something that um, Shab Ahmed in his his book, mm -hmm. uh, before Orthodoxy, which we may one day have an episode on, also looks at at some length. So uh, you had uh, in, in in any kind of big tafsir work, you'll find a discussion of all of these verses about prophets and their actions. You know how the uh, Sunnis understand the fact that prophets. Are reported to have done various things, yeah. uh, including things that might be understood as sins, or even, um, you know, Ibn Hazm. Before, before they, they, yeah, before they yes. Yeah. yes, 
uh, although not, not in all cases. So the, the famous case, course, for instance, of yeah. the prophet Dawood, alayhi salam, yes. the story in the Hebrew Bible of, of David and Bathsheba. Now, it, it, it occurs even in the tafsir, and there's a book, an excellent book on this, we should have an episode on by uh, Khalil Muhammad. Hmm. Uh, already in the tafsir literature, uh, you know, the, the version of the David Bathsheba story is very different from what you get in the Hebrew Bible. No, nobody accuses yeah. 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 David of uh, any kind of impropriety in that, right. in, in, right. in, in the sense yeah. that the Bible does. Yes. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so, but so authors like Harazi kind of still have to square the circle somehow. I think, I mean, there are so many things going on with um, a, uh, the formation of a sort of doctrinal canon, so to speak. Um, you know, in the early period, I'm sure, and, and this is a late antique context as well, so there's, there are going to probably be, you know, disagreements even in the time of Tarar ibn Amr, uh, you know, about what the memory is of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi You know, this is, yeah. he's, that's pretty early. So in a sense, um, you know, I, I think you also signal the fact that, you know, for Muslims, the study of the Prophet wasn't just a, 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 a process of it's it's a it's an act of devotion um and, yes, of course. You know, and and when we utter the name of the prophet we say sallallahu alaihi wasallam we don't usually just say muhammad because the quran says you know he does sometimes so, refer to him as the prophet sometimes yes. he refers to him as muhammad sallallahu so you have a kind of range of, of register, registers or ways of referring to him and as a consequence of that, it does change the nature of the conversation. Um, and, you know, obviously, um, there's a, a, the impression I get that Michael Muhammad Knight is hopefully also alerting the sort of the reader of just that, that dimension, that, uh, in a sense, inescapable dimension of, um, you know, the study of the Prophet. Um, but I, yes, I, think, I can give an example of that, that I think illustrates the point. He discusses this. Uh, especially in the introduction, uh, I mean, for him, it's it's clear that you know scholarship isn't just ph philological fireworks or spadework or whatever. Yeah, right. uh, it's not an arm to exercise, and one any Muslim will have some some kind of investment in the Prophet as as indeed Michael Knight does in his own this and various various works of his. Um, one way in which that comes out in in this book is in the introduction he, he explores his kind of commitments as a muslim feminist author hmm. and like in a number of works uh, for instance Aisha Turri in her important book on domestic violence in the islamic tradition or indeed Aisha Hidayatullah in her equally kind of challenging and important uh, book uh, feminist edges of the quran uh, you know in what sense are you invested in things like, uh, for instance, the, the angels being genderless, or even God. And I spoke about this debate about the, the vision of God that the prophet may or may not have had, and how, in what form he sees him. One of the things that Knight finds troubling, although he discusses it very frankly, and he says, you know, we, um, in some sense, he, he doesn't want to rob uh, feminist Muslim scholars of, or, or even just Muslims generally, of a resource they may may find dear. So one always has to be alive to the implications of knowledge, and, and what and what impact it might have on people. Right. 
and, and, and other authors I mentioned are very explicit about this, and, and knowledge can always be appropriated and misappropriated for, uh, you could say, nefarious purposes. So, uh, you know, he finds, for instance, when the angels are discussed, although any work of Islamic theology will say, for instance, they are genderless and so on, that they are always, almost always depicted in, in gender terms, certainly when they become embodied. Mm-hmm. So whenever the prophet or his companions encounter the angel Gabriel, he's always right. a male. Right. Uh, and uh, and he's a very kind of particular kind of male, you know, very excessive dark hair and... And, and the skin and, and so on. Um, and, you know, this gendering also has implications for how, how we understand the Prophet. So now, in many contexts today, hmm. um, there is a, a certain reluctance to talk about specific aspects of the Prophet's life. And, it, you know, it's partly the power power relations that exist in our world hmm. and this, this self-consciousness Muslims have when they speak about... Uh, issues that in the modern period are kind of tricky for whatever reason or controversial. So, uh, you know, Muslims have internalized this critique that, you know, Orientalists in the 19th century make of the Prophet as kind of uh, as manly, as as red-blooded, if you will. Now, one thing he discusses here is, you know, in many, many reports, and this is something one finds quite consistently throughout the Hadith, Purpose, you know, the prophet is celebrated by his companions as virile, right. as preeminently masculine, right. as and he, he cites variants, you know, yeah. thirty-five or forty, or uh, or I think thirty times various numbers are given the strength of other men in terms right. of right. Uh, particular um, ability. Now, for them, that that, that was something to be cel- celebrated. It right. was not a right. source of shame. Uh, but the prophet's body is is preeminently a, a male one. Right. Another respect in which, uh, and partly as a result of the colonial gaze, but not not entirely, is how one views particular uh, substances. So I don't think any many Muslims, at least, would have problems with the idea of the prophet's saliva conveying barakah. Barakah, by the way, is one of the key key, uh, along with the idea of the study of the of bodies. Right. On, on both of which subjects, Berakah and the body, and he defines Berakah in various ways, the focus of past scholarship has really been on Sufism. Mm-hmm. So he kind of brings this, this discourse, these frames of inquiry, to interrogate the Hadith corpus specifically. So that's mm-hmm. one of the original contributions of the book. Right. But what about other substances? I, I mean, I remember reading, I think, Ali Goma being asked about, uh, you know, what do we do about this report where somebody drinks the urine of the Prophet? I mean, that, that sounds very odd. Right. Not least for reasons of ritual purity. I mean, right. in many reports, you know, the Prophet clearly regarded urine as both dirty and, and ritually impure. Right. You know, and when, when the Bedouin urinates in the mosque, you know, you can't just pray, you have to right. cleanse it away. And an interesting report also that Knight mentions where, uh, although the com- companions regarded or reported to have regarded the Prophet Sallallahu sweat as fragrant and even to have bottled it yeah. and, and kind of kept it, um, there is one report in which the prophet wears a kind of wool garment, a black wool garment, and he sweats in it, and this makes a smell. And he, he's reported as not having like the smell and has, having discarded the garment, which might suggest that the prophet didn't necessarily see himself in that way. Hmm. So again, this an emphasis on the diversity of voices. But uh, there is a discussion of you know of uh, 
urine and something it's really something that emerges only later in the right. period especially fourth sensory texts you mean in, in collections uh, that come later yes so tabaran is very smart and for example and um in many of the reports the the drinking is, is or some of them at least the, the drinking is accidental so yes. um Ayman, uh, yes. is looking around for something to drink you know as as we do sometimes get up in the middle of the night for a glass of water and, and then she finds a vessel <laughs> yes and uh thing that i was throwing away and she said oh I yes don't. and and in one report he saw some laughs opening his mouth so wide that his, his molars are visible right, so it's kind of funny, funny episode and in some the, the the drinking of the prophet's blood can even be regarded as foreshadowing danger or uh kind of giving us a sense of foreboding so in one report the prophet is cupped and he normally disposes of his blood normally by pouring away pouring it away or having it buried as he does with hair and and right. uh, and nail fingernails other waste products because the prophet seems to have regarded these as waste products according to these reports right. so I them. Right. and um in one report abdullah ibn zubair is kind of charged with getting rid of this blood and he drinks yeah, I it. it's a late report relatively uh, some of them well, again, i don't i don't recall but what, what what is the significance of his drinking it now in some variants i i i i would say the the majority of the variants like mentions mm -hmm. the prophet sees this as a bad sign and of course we all know what happens to abdullah ibn zubair and the, the right. of, right. of the haram and so on but, but there's also a report uh, i mean this is from the battle of uh, uhud if i recall correctly when they are kind of pinned down in uh, kind of uh, yes. mountain or something and um pulls out um sort of the kind of uh, rings of, of chain mail i think it is from yeah. the blood kind of flows and he and and he and he drinks the blood um and and the yes. Prophet actually praises him for it or something like that yes. this is a at least um yes so you you do find elements of this and other things like urine are kind of occur much later and their meaning is not always straightforward right so in some variants of that report involving um Ayman, he says you know yeah. he might laugh and say you've been protected from the fire because uh, something that Knight emphasizes multiple times is you know in a very literal way you are what you eat right, right? Yeah. So in the same way that in some reports, when Hind bin Tu'atbeh chews the liver of Hamza, she's unable to swallow it. Why? In some, in some discussions, it's made explicit because you know, God would not punish any part of Hamza with the fire. Right. And by virtue of eating and digesting that liver, she would in some sense have a part of Hamza inside her. Right. 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 Uh, so yes. So I, I want to change tack slightly, and I recognize Jazakumullah uh, for the comments and the questions, and, and we're going to get to them in just a moment. Um, but I, I wanted to sort of like think a little bit about um, authenticity and, and perhaps present a speculative sort of reading of my own oh. as someone who's not actually read the book in the first place. But about. about the way read it. I, I think it's a very interesting, right. uh, sometimes provocative, but always interesting read. I, I hope to read it, and you've mentioned that it's actually remarkably short as a piece of work. So no, I mean not, not overly short, but it's 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 well written enough that it is it is a it's a book you can kind of finish in a sitting because it's it's well read, it's accessible. Yeah. No, I, I mean I, I don't mean in any way to sort of uh, talk. talk I, I should say concise would be the best way of expressing it because. If you if you look at the range of texts consulted, I mean many 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 hours of just sifting texts and reading right. through them. 
from al Khatib al Baghdad, his work, which is no right. no small <laughs> small text. Uh, you know, the whole the whole the major part of the Sunni Hadith corpus, at least. Right. Yeah. Now, the, the the main point that I'm trying to suggest, and and this is something which, you know, uh, I. Uh, alhamdulillah, I spent a, a good deal of time studying hadith with um, a scholar who's recently published <laughs> a very large book, Sheikh Muhammad Akram al-Nadwi, who's a, a very accomplished scholar of hadith. And uh -huh. I, I remember him sort of once telling us in class, oh, you should all read Siyar Alam al-Nubala. And, uh, you know, uh, at the time we were novices, so to speak, and we were like, oh, you know, uh, how, how long is it? And he said, oh, it's about 24 volumes. And, <laughs> and, and he was saying it with a straight face. I mean, he was saying that, look, you know, I've, I've read the whole book. Uh, some of the volumes I've read seven or eight times, and this was, you know, 15, 10, 10, 15 years ago. So I, I suspect, you know, when I, he used to be a, a fellow at the um, Center for Islamic Studies when I was an undergraduate at Oxford, and yeah. I would regularly see him walking, because so, he'd walk to work and walk back home. I'd regularly see him walking on the streets of Oxford, carrying a volume of Siyar Alam and Nubala and reading it. So it was kind of just his daily habit of constantly yes. going through the text. And one of the great things about Adabi is he's attentive to all of these different layers and reports. And, right. right. And he's a kind of critical scholar who sifts this and But not just that. I mean, the latest Sunni master, uh, Hadith masters in particular, people like Adabi, people like Ibn Hajar and so on, they put a premium on, uh, you know, authenticity. and. You know, I'm not someone who's studied this to the depth to be able to say this, you know, as someone who's an expert um, speaking with authority. But, um, you know, referring to these kinds of um, experts within the Sunni canon, uh, there's a recognition that there's a reason why the six books uh, are the six books, so to speak. And Ibn Majah kind of joins in later on. And, you know, obviously, Jamal al Usul has, uh, I think, uh, another text. I can't recall, maybe Mu'ta of Imam Malik or something. And... Uh, and it's, that canonicity is largely by virtue of the reliability of those sources. So in a sense, what I'd like to suggest is the variation that we have and the the later, uh, another comment that uh, scholars of hadith, and this might be sort of my own biases as someone trained in, uh, you know, 21st century Sunni conceptions of how the canon developed in terms of the hadith canon. Um, you know, the later sources are not as reliable as the earlier ones, in a sense, you know, the, uh, this doesn't go across the board, but, you know, um, the Muatta is considered reliable, but it's not really a collection of hadith, it's hadith and fiqh. So when you get to the six books, after the six books, once you get to, obviously, Tabarani is just a collector. He, he's also oh. highly unreliable when it comes to, you know, he does constant mudallis and things like this. Also, but, but I should say, and, and this is relevant to the book, I mean, not, not to say that they don't have you know, um, material. Which I mean, some of the, some of the texts you find in Tabarani's Ma'jam that don't appear in the six books appear in Dirar bin Amr's Kitab Taharish already right. in the first, in the second century. Right, right. But so again, uh, and, and one thing he says in the book is, you know, later sources do occasionally preserve early early material exactly. stuff that you wouldn't find in sources that were earlier. I mean, there's no. Um, Absolutely. Yes, I mean, Bayhaqi's uh, Sunan al Kubra, which he uses yeah. quite a lot. Yeah. Uh, by scholars like Motsky has been used to reconstruct some of these these snared trees, right, right, right. and Bayhaqi frequently preserves in that text because it's voluminous. I think like yeah. thirty thousand reports or something like this. You know, he preserves variants of the snares, and I've seen this myself in my own research yeah. Yeah. that complement and illuminate material you find with much shorter snares in earlier works. Right. It's not that later author, author, authorities don't necessarily preserve. Material. Now, yes, there is certainly a change in direction, and some of the extravagance 
uh, or some of the trends we find frankly awkward do yeah. sometimes only appear in these later sources. But yeah. even in the early period, as, as I've tried to stress, um, and as, as Knight stresses in the book, you do find a, a certain amount of diversity. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and what I'd add to that is, you know, in talking about this kind of gradation of the sort of the authority of what becomes canonized in in the Sunni tradition within the six texts, six books, for example, and the relative, you know, uh, non-canonicity of the other texts is not to say that, you know, if you go to any great authority of the later centuries, they're using all of these sources. You know, Ibn Hajar is constantly looking at all of these sources and trying to find material that is beyond the six books in those sources. I mean, in our own yes. time, of course, you have major efforts by Salafis to look for all the Sahih hadiths beyond the six books, for example, uh, which yes. are I mean, which are interesting uh, as a project unto itself. It's a, in a yes. sense not been tried in that way. And of course, you have people like I forget uh, Al Haythami, Nur Al Haythami, and all of these sorts That's of things. Yes. Yes. And yes, so. You, you mentioned that point earlier about, you know, from my 21st century perspective on Sunnism. Now, already you know, in, the, in the kind of formative period of Sunnism or proto-Sunnism or the Al-Hadith, you know, we see this concern with criticality and sifting. This is what distinguishes someone like Yahya bin Ma'in and Ibn Hanbal from uh, right. others to, right. to some extent. Uh, but that not that is not the vision even of all Sunnis. Hmm. Um, and barring you know some of these major this efflorescence you could say of the hadith sciences and expertise of course we, we still haven't really studied later periods hmm. and i know garrett davidson's work uh, we should probably have an episode on he discusses post-classical hadith <laughs> transmission it's a really yeah. important book right. um that came out recently right. uh but <laughs> in most periods most of the time my impressionistic sense is, and others, some scholars have commented on this, like Ben Amsadi, when he talks about fiqh, he talks about the, the general speaking, the insulation of hadith studies from fiqh. Right. So and hadith was not, in many periods of Sunnism, was not a mainstay of the yeah. curriculum, or, you know, famously Ghazali and the various criticisms that have been made of his kind of want of hadith criticism. And, and that, that, you know, that's by no means a marginal work in the, in the Sunni imagination, Sunni religious imagination. Right. And I would like to suggest, and I'd be welcome to, uh, to be corrected on this point, that sure. this seems to have been the norm, uh, yeah. not the exception. That's the impression I get as well. Um, I mean, and, and this is this is what's really fascinating, because as you say, you know, People pick on Ghazali, I think, uh, a little unfairly, because you go to any work of fiqh as well. And yep. these people aren't really, I mean, this is Shah Akram's comment when we were studying Hanafi fiqh with them. He's saying, look, these people aren't studying hadith. The, the hadith they're quoting are just the ones that have been quoted by their fiqh teachers, that have yes. been quoted by their fiqh teachers. And so, so this is exactly the kind of insulation uh, Sadiq talks about. Now, yeah. another book, we, <laughs> not to distract from Knight's important achievement right. in this text, but... Right. Uh, Ahmed Hamda, uh, in his forthcoming book, I mean, based on, on my you know, somewhat familiarity with his other work, right. uh, who looks at the contribution of Al-Albani. Now, it would be an exaggeration to say Al-Albani single-handedly revived the study of hadith in the 20th century, but his, his contribution is huge. Massive. I would say clearly, I would say probably larger than any single figure. Uh, yeah. And... Uh, I mean, yeah, beginning, beginning in, in, in the 1950s yeah. and onwards, and you know, he reads 
Rashid Rida's criticism of uh, or discussion of the Ihya and its 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 right. kind of authenticity problem, as it were. Right. But what I want to stress again, following on this point, Mike uh, Knight, uh, the Knight insists on throughout the book is Sunnism is, is a kind of process. Mm-hmm. Was a broad charge of the term is, is not inappropriate. Yeah. Uh, it's a process that, that continues to unfold, as you said, Usama. Yeah. Now, to turn quickly to the, this uh, question by Yusuf Al Afifi, if you can bring it up. Screen, and I'll, I'll just read it out if that's all right. So, yep. Yusuf Al Afifi, I mean, he was addressing a, a discussion we were having about half an hour ago. But, um, Surely there is an identifiable limit to the anthropomorphism that is held as a common denominator among Sunnis. Um, yeah. So I didn't yes. Know. Yes, there is, absolutely. But again, different Sunnis will differ on their perspectives on this. Uh, so, for instance, in the, the theological work of the Dharami, who writes against Bashar al-Marisi and, and so on, he says particular things about God's distinction from creation and God being better in khalqihi and distinct from creation, you know, physically distinct. Uh, is this being separate, separate. Uh, no, he's often confused with him, but this is Othman bin Sa'id al Dharami, okay. who dies in 280, 280, I think. Okay. Uh, the the Sahab dies in 255. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so there are statements in his book against Bashir al Marisi that Zahid al Kothari, the kind of modern Asari figure, uh, says, he says this is. Uh, Kitab uh, al-Zayf, or, sorry, uh, yeah, so he denounces it as, as a work of, a blasphemous work. Mm, right. Fakhr uh, al-Din razi calls Ibn Khuzayma's Kitab al-Tawheed, Kitab al-Shirk, if I remember rightly, or Kitab al-Zayf. Right, so, Sunni, Sunni is... Anthropomorphism, Yes, for, for on charges of anthropomorphism. Now, there are some things that I suppose all people who identify as Sunnis would, would agree about, so... You know, the Prophet did not become incarnated in, uh, you know, any any man or any person, right? So God, God didn't. Sorry. God, sorry, God did not become. Uh, sorry, confusing that. God did not become incarnated in any person. So this is a belief held by so-called, you know, uh, as they refer to Hulat, extreme Shia sects, mm-hmm. and this would expel one from the fault of Islam and the view of uh, Shia theologians as well, many Shia theologians. Right. Um, but within Sunnism, there are, you know, there, there, yes, there is an outer boundary, but within that, there is disagreement, if that, if that helps. And, and, and that disagreement can be very broad and sometimes very sort of acrimonious. Um, yes, with indeed. People, I, I was just, um, you know, Abdul Qahir al-Baghdadi is very uncompromising, for example, about, and, and I get this impression from people like Abdul Qasim al-Qushayri and, and when Ash'arism kind of came of its own in that period. Yeah, I mean, again, different different views on, on what Ash'arism is. I mean, right. Knight speaks about Asma in this book. And I mean, we've already looked at some, some examples of this earlier in the episode, but hmm. uh, I mean, because it's not relating to the Prophet's body, one, one example he doesn't bring up is, you know, the... the passage in the Qur'an discussing Ibrahim salam, seeing the stars and the moon and so on and saying, Hada Rabbi, Hada Akbar, and what, what have you. Uh, a figure like Ibn Hazm says, anybody who says that Ibrahim actually believed that his Lord was the stars or the moon or what have you, is, you know, an apostate and and all of this. So, and, and if you really want a kind of insight into the, the kind of world, the interpretive world generated by these verses, and how Sunnism shifts to kind of exclude some of these interpretations. Read, read just Tabari's tafsir on any of these any of these episodes. Uh, 
but we are kind of coming towards the end. We're yeah, at the end of the episode. Yeah. If it's okay, I'm just going to. I mean, uh, there was one other comment, and I just wanted to read it out. Um, it's a very kind comment from Aisha Saeed. Um, so I, I just thought I'd, I'd read it. Um, she, she says, uh, this is a difficult topic of discussion, highly sensitive for some uh, religious sensibilities, especially in the subcontinent. She's writing yes. to prior, as I recall. And yes. so thank you for presenting in an academic manner. And Jazakallah khair. I mean, I, I hope that, uh, you know, we've we've tried to be sensitive. Obviously, we're both Muslims. Yes. But we, we, we consider the Prophet, a, um, you know, a, an object of veneration, uh, naturally. Of course. Um, and so, uh, but at the same time, uh, these these issues can, you know, particularly in the Indian subcontinent where I'm from as well, the other end, of course, um, it can be a, a, a deeply emotive and, and sometimes sort of violent oh, yeah. issue. So, uh, yes. and, yeah, so I hope that we've contributed to a, a reasonable discussion, inshallah. Yes, and I would say in the book, I mean, it is... I, I mean, I can't think of the tone ever being inappropriate or anything like this. And as I said, you know, all the all of the texts discussed are featured in various ways in the Sunni Hadith Corpus. Knight's job, uh, in, in, you could say, is not to privilege one vision over the other, hmm. but to explore this diversity of views and how depictions of the Prophet Sallallahu and his body kind of shift over time or remain consistent. And in, in those respects, it's a very successful Perhaps if I can add a sort of uh, an interesting uh, to, to what you've just said, which is because I've just finished uh, writing a review of um, Abdul Hakim Murad's Traveling Home. Uh -huh. <laughs> Perhaps I can share it with you at some point. But um, uh, you know, one of the things that he complains about in modern sort of academia, including in Islamic studies, kind of hinted at, is that uh, it's all it's all sociological. It's all about sort of analysis and empirical sort of like presenting of data and so on. Yeah. And there's no commitment to truth, and that's that's an interesting sort of critique, which it, it's made me reflect. Um, it's something obviously because of my own training as an alim. You know, I'm in a sense studying these sorts of things originally when I pursued Islamic studies yeah. in that sort of a setting. It was so that I could live my life in accord with a truth, so to speak. Okay. And so it, I just night night is not naive about objectivity and so on. Absolutely. No, no, no. I mean, I will not. And I think a lot of the current sort of discussions and debates within the sort of um, uh, social sciences are very much alive to this complexity of, of the context mm. we live in. And we've reflected on this briefly as well. Mm. So, but I just thought I'd throw that there. It's an interesting, um, you know, perspective from uh, a scholar who's Sheikh Abdul Hakim. Uh, uh, Jan Islam is asking which book is this? It's called Traveling Home um, Essays. Sure, of essays yeah. by, uh, by Hakim. Yeah, it's an interesting question. You, mm. <laughs> you do sense. I don't know if it's a fair comment, but in this and other works of night, a certain, uh, especially you know, once he received his academic training, very much in the, in the framework of uh, religious studies, right. it does tend to generate a certain skepticism about about notions of truth and, and objectivity. Sure. So I, I, I suppose to some extent that comes across in this work, but the book is really a catalog of this kind of cacophony of voices. He does he does talk a bit about. Shia voices as well, perhaps in further work, uh, there could be more yeah. more discussion of this. Inshallah, I mean, uh, we could go on for a long time about yeah. that sort of conversation. Jazakumullah khair, Omar, I really um, appreciate this very thoughtful um, reflection on what's obviously a very important contribution. Yes, to and then thank you, of course, to the author for having written it. I, I really right. enjoyed it. Uh, I was fascinated by the book. And, uh, and 
inshallah um, we hope to be back in a week's time so i'm sure you have another book lined up yes. um, so. uh, this is suhaira siddiqui's and i'll hold it up Fantastic. to the exciting and, and very important book on al-duwaini right. uh, law and politics under the abbasid an intellectual portrait of al-duwaini which focuses mostly on his legal theory and theology the two areas where i think he made the most important contributions to classical islamic thought we also ought to sort of um, again apologize for not really having a female author up until this point. It really is a, a, a yes, a, that, that is purely my fault, and it is a function of my very limited uh, time for reading the book. Uh, so, as, as a result of that, uh, the next few weeks will be devoted purely to, to uh, female, female authors. And you know, we have an embarrassment of riches, so it's not as if we're constrained for choice. There are many. Many excellent works written by uh, that that half of the human race, you could say. Barakallah <laughs> yeah. um, and Omar, uh, I look forward to seeing you in a week's time, and I look forward to seeing everyone else. Please do um, sort of feel free to uh, share these uh, episodes with friends, um, or let them know that they can subscribe on a platform like YouTube, and then they would be notified of the weekly uh, broadcast. But until next week, inshallah, uh, we look forward to seeing you. في أمان الله السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته